Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Twitter underwear today. The elastic is shot, and they're oh, kind of. Oh, I'm so sorry. They're kind of sliding down around my hips. I find it very oh. uncomfortable. Oh, it's a terrible feel. I don't feel like a man can work this way. Quitter socks or quitter drawers? Which is worse? They're both not good. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I have a new favorite sort of uh, unders, and and I want to talk about it, but I really I I want to reach out to the company and see if we can get into a business relationship. Best. Best undergarments I've ever worn. Are you willing to mention the brand or not? No. Okay. Well, not unless they're paying for it. Oh, wow. Interesting. It's some sort of thong. <laughs> yeah, Michael. That's what I'm rocking, the thong. Well, because I wear really tight yoga pants, as you can see. And, uh, yeah, I hate the panty lines. You don't want VPL. No. No, indeed. Humiliating. <laughs> Humiliating. <laughs> So, CEO of one of the largest nonprofit shelters in America, making millions off the money being thrown at bums and junkies. No way. You're telling me (laughs) there's somebody profiting from the homeless industrial complex? That can't be. Yeah. I had a uh, scary run-in with a street person over the weekend. Oh, my Uh, gosh. Another one? Tell you about it in a second. Well, you can tell us about it now if you want. I've uh, I've come to just accept that I guess this is just going to be part of life if you're going to live in a West Coast city, um, and just part of the deal. So I'm I'm pulling up to an establishment. Uh, there are street people around, but that's not something I would even throw into the conversation if I was talking to somebody from the area I live in, because there are street people around freaking everywhere. There just are. Just like there have always been. Oh, no, no, that's right. There used to be not many no, at all. No, no, never. I would never run into people like this 20 years ago, same town, or 15 years ago, or even 10 years ago. But anyway, and uh, I don't know if I can't speak to the person's homelessness or whatever, but, you know, uh, just hanging around with a backpack, drunk, drug addict sort of thing. Anyway, I pull up to a business, and as is often the case, uh, either or both my kids don't want to get out of the car to go into the store. Or into the place because there are uh, randos around, and we've had a bad experience in the past. So because the car, I'm parked right in front, I mean, I'm just feet away, I figure it's better for them to stay in the car than not, because I'm going to be able to see the car right from the door. I'm going to be right there. So I'm going to stay in the car. So I start to walk uh, toward the building. My son's in the car. And uh street person says, uh, hey, I'm looking for some other. I say, okay, yeah, it's over there, I think, or whatever. And he said, hey. And he walks over by my car. He's heading toward another business. He said, where's something? I point. He starts walking. Down. He said, who's that in there? I said, what? Who's that in that car? I said, why are you asking? Who's that in your car? Oh my, my son's God. sitting in there. Crazy person. I said, why are you asking? He said, what the? And then I, I wish I could repeat it, but I can't say all the words. What the F? Blah, blah, blah. Why? I can't ask. Blah, 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 blah. Just start screaming and yelling and waving his arms around. Standing right next to the passenger door of my car car with my nine-year-old inside. Oh, my God. Who's looking at me wide-eyed. And I got the same damn situation as I had at the restaurant where, okay, what do I do now? What, am I fighting this guy or hoping he leaves or is he about to start to try to open the door or... 
He just starts screaming and yelling nonsense, dropping Ugh. F-bombs, waving his arms, obviously very angry about who in the hell knows what. Why did he ask who's in my car? Um, and, and eventually he walked off. Thank God. I didn't call the police. You know why? Because they wouldn't have done anything. They can't do anything. They'd have told you the real tragedy is yeah. that a man like that doesn't have a free home furnished by the taxpayers. Those people are everywhere. And these businesses that are trying to survive are trying to survive with customers who are like, I don't want to go to that place because i got to walk by these people. Right, right. You see there's uh, dangerous-looking junkies out back you, or just out front, and you just keep driving. So what I think I've noticed, and this would fit in with the whole vibe of people stealing stuff and all that sort of thing, is the the, the street crowd... The other side of the law crowd has become emboldened. It seems to me that in the old days, if I made it clear, if I kind of like, you know, stood up straight, you'd allow, use a loud voice or whatever, they would slink off. They don't anymore. They get in your face. Right. Because they've become emboldened. They, they know no police are going to show up. They know nobody's going to call the cops. Mm-hmm. They know no uh, sanctions exist for exactly. them stealing or committing an assault or what have you. Or doing drugs it's publicly, freaking, taking a dump on the sidewalk. It's freaking scary, and there's enough bad things that have happened to people. Unfortunately, you get, you, man, you got to have your head on a swivel if you're going to be anywhere in a West Coast city. Enjoy your vacation plans if you're coming to the West Coast to visit Portland or San Francisco or any San Diego, any of the places you want to. Right. Well, and I would expand that to the you know blue cities like Austin, Texas, Missoula, Montana, Boise, Idaho. It's incredible. You're you're in uh, you know Eagle City, Idaho. You're great. You go 20 miles down the road or so, whatever it is, to Boise, you are beset by bums and junkies. Why would a society put up with this crap? Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's, it's so unwise. And it is so, such a disservice to the people who have drug habits and alcoholism because you're making, you're enabling. We are in a society of enablers. Okay. So you're a junkie. We're going to make it effortless and comfortable to be a junkie. We're going to make the other taxpayers, well, the taxpayers pay for your habits and your accommodations, your food, your medicine. And indeed, if you misbehave in any way, if you make yourself a public menace, if you are a thief and a robber, we will help you get away with it. That you enact policies like that, you get the results we see, and, and people are confused how it happened. I don't, what color is the sky in your world? How can it be any more clear what's happening? I don't know. Uh, it's just in a certain mood about it, or if it's just my new uh, view of the world. I, my feeling was this is just going to continue to happen until enough people get hurt or murdered. And then, uh, then public will will grow, and then will something will be done about it. It's the way the pendulum works on these things. Until enough people get stabbed or attacked or whatever, poor woman that got killed in the local area recently. Until enough of those happen, there won't be any public will to do anything about this. Well, unless the society just continues to decay, which I certainly hope is not the case, um, it's not decaying in a lot of places in America where they won't have this crap. Right. So uh, I've mentioned this before. Uh, when I was a little kid growing up in Chicagoland, my parents subscribed to the Chicago Tribune, which was definitely the more conservative newspaper in the area. And I read it all the time as a little kid. I was a weird little kid. Um, it explains a lot. Uh, but one of the things I became acutely aware of in Chicagoland, which was always a, a way democratic city, was that you would funnel enormous amounts of money to so-called charity programs as the government. 
And those charity programs existed as bribes to various civic so-called leaders, so-called civil rights leaders, whatever. You'd give them just a mess load of cash claiming to accomplish some wonderful purpose. They would spread it out to their cronies and in the neighborhood, and then those people would always show up and vote Democratic. And, you know, that's the way the scam works. Well, this is kind of similar. This is out in New York City. The CEO of the Core Services Group, which is one of the city's largest nonprofit shelters, wait till you hear about this guy, had all sorts of family on the payroll, funneled millions of dollars into companies he had financial stakes in. The, the New York Post examined 2,000 pages of tax returns, contracting disclosures, and legal documents involving Core Services Group and found a web of companies with ties to the nonprofit's <laughs> CEO, Jack Brown. The experts told the Post that the setup appears to serve little purpose other than placing Brown at the center of lucrative transactions. This is your homeless industrial complex. And now you've got L.A. and San Francisco, for instance, who have committed a billion dollars each more to homeless uh, money. Oh, yeah. And Gavin Mussolini, the lunkhead governor of California, pledging $12 billion is, uh, I guess, uh, next year uh, to eliminate homelessness. We're following the science. So this guy, among other things, created a string of for-profit companies that have received millions of dollars to provide key services at course shelters. Oh, so you need cleaning, you need food, you need equipment, you need painting, you need all sorts of things. Boy, who are you going to hire to do that? How about the companies you created? For-profit. A firm in which Brown, Brown holds a substantial stake received more than $3 million in rent over two years from his non-profit, according to tax filings. At least three family members of Brown are members of the Corps' various boards. Oh, they have several different boards of directors. They're employed by the nonprofit or related entities, according to records, and they that's, each draw a salary. That's pretty clever. Why just have one board of directors that's getting uh, fake salaries? Have a whole bunch of boards of directors. I'm on the board of directors for the blah, 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 homeless, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you're such a good person. Sure. Brown made at least half a million dollars from CORE and its affiliated non-profits in 2019 alone. Uh, Brown got another more than half million dollars from his related for-profit subsidiaries. The New York Times said in a report published Sunday, his brother Curtis made 140 grand the same year. The brother of a member of the nonprofit's board of directors, one Gordon Jackson, made at least $190,000 as Cord's head of community affairs. Additionally, the head record... of community affairs. Exactly. Well, <laughs> somebody's got to manage, you know, the affairs with how, the community. How are community affairs going? Right on, right on track. Swimmingly. Okay. Good, good to hear. Records also revealed that another tightly linked nonprofit controlled by Brown employs Mallory Jones, whose husband sits on the subsidiary organization's board and made $174,000 that year. You know, I feel like there's two kinds of people. There's the people that are smart enough to realize this is the way the world works and profit off of it. And then the rest of us dopes who pay for it. Those are the two crowds of people. Yeah. Yeah, and it's existed for a very long time, but but it's growing. You got to admit, it's growing, right? You know, as I've recommended many times, read uh, the Dictator's Handbook by Bruce. Oh, he's got a musical name, something something De La Mesquita. Um, but it's all about every government, every government from Kim Jong Il's to Joe Biden's, collects money from the people or sacks the treasury, then hands it out to the people that keep them in power in some Bingo. systems Bingo. in some systems it's just the general and the, the generals and the secret police 
and then the upper reaches of the military. In some systems, it's the cronies who get the people to vote in the 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 boroughs of New York or the uh, the aldermen of Chicago, whatever you call them uh, in Chicago. It's just it's a scam. That's why all these. All these, well, we just need to raise, to raise taxes. We need to have a, a bond issue to help the homeless, to, to help the poor, the downtrodden, the drug addicted. We just need to raise the taxes to do that. It's a scam, folks. It's a scam. The government has way more than they need to accomplish these problems. Please, come on, wake up. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. A couple of quick notes for you. Uh, piece in the major piece in the Washington Post, really interesting. Messy, incomplete U.S. data hobbles pandemic response. Yeah, you think we noticed? Nobody has any idea what they're talking about. New York City, their school employees union said we're asking the courts to strike down the mandate. In California, you can't bring the kids back until there's a mandate. New York, they're trying to get rid of all the mandates. Interesting. All right, whatever, go figure. And then this piece that I really like from the Wall Street Journal, uh, Dr. Monica. Gandhi, talking about COVID will soon be endemic, meaning it's just going to be around. And she writes, Australia, China, and New Zealand have pursued zero COVID policies that aim at elimination or even eradication. That goal is unrealistic. Smallpox is the only human disease that's ever been eradicated. The smallpox virus has, has had four properties that made it eradicable. The lack of an animal, res- animal reservoir, clear and distinctive signs and symptoms, mm. a short period of infectiousness, and both lifelong natural immunity after survival and a highly effective vaccine. They point out that uh, the Chinese bat fever, on the other hand, has animal reservoirs, a high level of transmissibility, overlapping symptoms with other respiratory diseases, a prolonged period of infectiousness caused by its propensity to spread from asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic carriers. So, she says, that's why reducing the disease from epidemic to endemic is the best case, one that will allow full return to normal. Um, Then she gives some more examples and gets into people who are not getting their their babies vaccinated for incredibly important things. But anyway, officials tried a wide variety of measures to control the Chinese bat fever. Masks, social distancing, lockdowns, travel restrictions, ventilation, testing, contract tracing. These had varying levels of success, but ultimately proved insufficient to control the virus in a sustained way. That will require widespread immunity. Um, you know, there's more to it, and it's, it's well written and all. But our point is, look, do the things we know. Get vaccinated, or if you don't, you got to be extra careful, or you're going to get it. You're going to take your chances on dying. But the idea that we can just, let's clamp down the economy. Let's eliminate all these jobs just for another six months, and we can eradicate this thing. It will never, ever happen. These mandates, you know, it, 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 they're counterproductive uh, in that it's it's turning all of this into a political issue. Going into the pandemic, I don't think any of us thought vaccines and masks and all that sort of stuff would be political issues, but they've managed to turn it into a political issue, and now people are getting more and more dug in, and going forward, so much of our health stuff is going to be political, and it's going to be counterproductive, as he pointed out. You think you're going to get more people vaccinated by making it mandatory, but you're not. You're going to make it worse by driving people into camps, and now politicians are going to run on, I'll stop the mandates, and you know, it just even becomes more solidified as part of who you are. Right. It's it's one of the more interesting aspects of the time I've spent on Earth watching the American left go from the party of uh, freedom almost to the point of anything goes to the party of we want to control everything. 
to bring you a utopia. And I don't care whether you're raising a child or running a state or gripping a golf club. Do you think the tighter you grip it, the better you're going to be? Usually not. And I think that's what we're seeing. And pre-pandemic, not getting vaccinated or not getting your kids vaccinated was a lefty thing. But, you know, Trump changed it all around. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, just uh, to finish up the discussion of the Monica Gandhi piece, Dr. Monica Gandhi, uh, who's with the uh, she's a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She's writing about how, listen, eliminating covid is impossible. It's never going to happen for a variety of reasons. All you can do is learn to live with it. Um, and then she talks about different countries and what they're doing right now. Uh, we will need to accept that. The non-eradicable disease is endemic. A low burden of disease should facilitate the transition. And although SARS-CoV-2 has proved unpredictable, no, and here's, here's your key point. No virus in history has ever to continue to evolve to higher pathogenicity. Meaning, no virus in history has ever evolved to get more and more deadly. As we learn from HIV, mutations usually incur costs to viral fitness or render the virus weaker. Because killing the host quickly doesn't do the virus any good, in other words. No vaccine-preventable or immunity-inducing infection has ever raged on as a pandemic indefinitely. An endemic virus doesn't require continuing isolation and other restrictions. Defanging Chinese bat fever by stripping it of its ability to cause severe disease through immunity will relegate it to the fate of the other four circulating cold-causing coronaviruses. The key to this normalcy is immunity whether vaccines or natural immunity. So I, uh, time for the emergency powers to go away. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Here's Armstrong and Getty. You know, the way the news works is uh, a couple of things. Number one, they're pitching an ideology, and so it's wildly biased. We were talking about that last hour. It gives you this distorted view of, of the country. And or they just go with what's hot. They watch what you, each other are doing constantly in the news media. We're aware of this. We've worked around newsrooms our our whole uh, mediocre careers. Um, uh, on the other hand, we just... Try to come up with the most interesting and or relevant stuff. For instance, this. This is not in the news in the least. With Afghanistan ending our longest war, blah, blah, blah. We finally got those 2,500 troops out. Hey, lie. It's a major moment in American history, right? Did you know that we have 50,000 men and women scattered across uh, East Africa mostly, but Africa and the Middle East, fighting against various sorts of Islamic insurgents and Al-Qaeda offshoots and Al-Shabaab and the rest of it. 50,000. So they would be soldiers in the war on terror. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They they opened this article with a 550-acre uh, military base, Camp Lemonier, which I'm guessing you have never heard of. No, 550 acres. That's big. It houses U.S. special ops teams tasked with fighting the world's most powerful al-Qaeda affiliates, specifically al-Shabaab. It unfolds over miles of sun-scorched desert and volcanic rock inside the tiny country of Djibouti. Earthquakes shake Djibouti. Uh, the base uh, looks, and the station, troop station here will tell you, like a sand-colored prison fortress. But two sub-camps sit behind 20-foot fences ringed with yet more razor wire, and you get commando teams that jump in airplanes and, and fly about um, across the southern border with Somalia for what they call episodic engagements with al-Shabaab, helping local forces. 
Um, but it's in that case, it's it's I'm not sure how many people are stationed there, but they go through this checklist of all sorts of places in the Middle East and Africa. Fifty thousand of our guys out there with guns in hot zones. And it's not every day, but, uh, you know, every couple of days they fly out and they engage in real fire, real combat. And what's the what's the reasoning in that that makes sense, but having that same thing in Afghanistan doesn't? Uh, that's an excellent question. Nobody's talking about America's longest war in Somalia, but we've been either aiding or actively joining in the fight against uh, Islamic lunatics there forever. Black Hawk Down, etc. It was all about trying to establish a government there and, and yeah. not give way to the warlords and the Islamists. And the other side of that argument would be, um, or, or in addition, I guess, to the argument would be, nobody's talking about making sure schoolgirls learn in Somalia either, because I'm guessing they're not. Right. Yeah, it's an excellent point. So, just wanted you to know, you know, as we've you know, discussed for many, many years, it used to be when the United States was involved in a military endeavor, uh, there were kids from every neighborhood who were in the armed forces, and every family felt it and talked about it, and it was front and center. But now we have a fairly narrow military class, and we can have 50,000 people scattered around the world. And I'm not talking about sitting on a base in South Korea hoping Kim Jong, newly thin fathead, um, doesn't launch a strike. I'm, I'm talking about hot zones. Um, yeah. And it's, it's worth knowing. You could be a, a young guy, probably guy, and uh, come back and have spent your entire military career in full-on battle with bad guys, like stuff you see in the movies, and nobody would even know what you were talking about if you brought it up. I was in Djibouti fighting Al-Shabaab. Where and what? Right. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Is that a restaurant? Uh, we got this text, and we ought to fill this in, just because maybe we're being a little too clever. Uh-oh. Uh, what the hell is tree equity? I specifically listen to you guys all the time, and I think I missed the joke or didn't realize that this is a real thing. If this is a thing, could you please explain what you're talking about? Yeah, sorry about that. In one of the bills, I guess, is it the human infrastructure bill? It's in the real infrastructure bill. I don't remember which one. I thought it was the francification bill. There's actually... a hell of a lot of crap in the so-called real infrastructure bill. But anyway, oh yeah, uh, tree equity, and it's gazillions of dollars. To make sure that uh, under-treed neighborhoods get more trees. There's a belief that some neighborhoods don't have as many trees as other neighborhoods, and that's not fair. And so they're, go- and then, and, and, and you should put, of course, the federal government in charge of this, having yes. a dollar as far away from the roots of the local tree as you can get, because that's where you're going to get metaphor. The, that's where you're going to get the most accuracy. Not really a metaphor. <laughs> and uh and uh yeah so they're going to spread around gazillions of dollars that uh, here's one thing i guarantee you it won't do it won't end up with an equal number of trees in all the neighborhoods <laughs> more trees for black folks the underserved under treed communities which tend to be of color and blah 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 well if they're in cities yeah there are fewer trees in cities than there are in the countryside or if you think that you've got a problem with that in your town or whatever then y'all should get together and vote on it and uh, plant some damn trees but right the federal government being involved in this is hilarious it, it is and that's one of the things that makes me crazy I could repeat my screed of last hour about the government is merely a broker in you know spending tax dollars and keeping a cut but if you want the bluntest dumbest, most wasteful approach to a local problem. Please do employ the federal government. If you want it to take decades and never actually happen correctly, employ the federal government. And yet everybody acts, it looks to the feds for solutions. I just, I don't know. What color is the sky in your world? 
You called what I said a metaphor. I was looking at my son's uh, homework. He's got a test this week in analogies, metaphors, and similes. And I got to admit, I was reading the definition of each. Ah, having trouble telling the difference. I mean, it's they're slicing the days. You slice it pretty thin on analogies, metaphors, and similes. And there was one other word similar to well, that. Well, I know every every simile is a metaphor. Correct. But not every metaphor is a simile. That is analogies. Right. Um, an analogy is uh, is just when you compare one, say, function to a similar function. Yeah, and doesn't have to be. Um, or am I getting it backwards? But uh, if I say like that, noise is like a jackhammer in my brain. Simile, oh, like because I use the word like. Anytime mm-hmm. you use the word like, it's a simile. Um. I'm trying to come up with not using a word like. But anyway, a jackhammer in my brain, there's not actually a jackhammer in my brain. So that makes it a simile as opposed to an analogy? I mean, well, a, now, a metaphor as opposed to an analogy? If you said the voice, a jackhammer keeping me from sleeping, that would be a metaphor. An analogy would be, an analogy is awfully like a simile. They are. That's why I was saying. The the description of them, at least from this paperwork, goes slicing it very thin. And I thought, is it really important to have three different words for this? But anyway, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-learning this stuff. I learned it, but. Define analogy. And I said to my son, to me, a good analogy is like a car driving up a hill. And he, he didn't catch my joke, so. <laughs> An analogy, Jack, is a comparison between two things, typically for the purpose of explanation or clarification. Okay, then what is a metaphor? Um, <laughs> it's uh, describing one thing with another thing. All right. Ah, yeah, I think, well, with a metaphor, the leaves are falling. Yellow snow. No, that's a poor choice. Yellow snow. No, that's that's. Get to that. No, no, no. (laughs) The leaves are falling. A gentle rain of decaying leaf stuff. I mean, that's that's a metaphor, but it's not an analogy exactly, is it? If I say you're a pain in my ass, you're not actually a pain in my ass, but or is that just an insult? Right. That's just (laughs) well, it's a metaphorical insult. No, it's not. I don't know what it is. The banking system is much like the system of a tree. It takes moisture from below, like mm. the savings, that oh. disseminates the leaves of loans. That's a good That's one. That's an analogy. Gotcha. It's not a good one. <laughs> yes, Michael. This segment is like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> there you go. That's a simile, my That's friend. That's pretty good right there. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Um, it's funny when you go through your kid's homework and you remember, ah, oh, God, I remember. You can just, you can just picture like a hot afternoon after lunch, kind of tired, <laughs> teacher talking about this, trying to remember enough for the quiz. <laughs> Child. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Exactly. Son, trust me, just get the gist of this and move on. Yeah, and it'll be fine. Everything, yeah. everything will be fine. So a couple of things uh, I came across on the same topic that I thought were fascinating, and I've wondered about this for years and always been kind of afraid to say it out loud because I, it didn't seem like it was cool, right? It sounded like an old man. But uh, Sally Rooney is an author you either have or haven't heard of. doesn't make any difference, but she's written several very popular like bestseller novels about young people. Uh, n- not even millennials, but like the next generation, what do they call it? Z? Whatever the next one is after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in her latest one, uh, it redefi- redefines old-fashioned searches for meaning. 
And this is based on her experience being around young people. In Beautiful World, her new book, young people are exploring a different way of being. Now for spoilers. The characters trade in showy declarations of Marxism for a quieter search for meaning. Meaning. They're deeply curious about religion. Casual sex is critiqued. Commitment holds the most allure. A church wedding is the setting for one of the book's most transcendent moments. A baby even appears. Rather than diving into wild experimentation, they embrace a small life. And uh, and as one reviewer put it, the, the youth in this series of novels has now gone trad, as they call it. You know, young people have got to have a cool term for everything. No, I know it. Stupid terms. And in the end, they're much happier than any of Rooney's previous uh, characters have been in their other books by going trad. So this chronicler of young people has its characters kind of being like our parents and happier, which I find interesting. And utterly unsurprising. Maybe it's surprising that it's a hot new novel, but uh, those of us who've lived a little, little bit understand that. I didn't think it would come back. Did you? I didn't think oh, it was going to come back. No, no. The, the appearance of that is a little bit surprising. The fact that the characters are happier, you know, if you're an honest writer, is not surprising. Um, one side note before I get into the sex stuff. I had not heard the term cottagecore, but I have seen it. I just didn't know I had seen it. Cottagecore is this kind of small prairie life traditional thing. And even Target is selling prairie dresses now, it said here. Uh, so it's I, like I've seen hardcore. That's that sort of core, but it's prairie core. Yeah, oh, and I, and I have seen uh, women in prairie dresses, and and I didn't realize it was part of kind of like that view of the world. Anyway, so last week uh, I was beaten up on Michelle Goldberg for a really stupid column she had in the New York Times, and then this weekend she had one I really really liked: why sex positive feminism is falling out of fashion. And I thought this fit in with what I was just saying about that novel, and it's about how women. Well, I'll just read from her article. Um, the warnings of the anti-porn feminists all these years seem to have been belatedly realized. This one professor saying, sex for my students is what porn says it is, girls complain. So they're finding out that their sex lives are based on the world of porn and that that kind of just sets the tone that they're expected to live up to, which is not surprising at all. Right. They're not trying to satisfy, please uh, love uh, their lover. They're trying to recreate porn. (laughs) And these Gen Z women think that sex positivity is overrated. One 23-year-old woman told the professor, it feels like we were tricked into exploiting ourselves. I've been saying this for years. And like I said, I was always kind of embarrassed to say it out loud because... You sound like, you know, a stodgy old timer or whatever, but I've, but I've always thought the, 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 the popularity of female comedians about how slutty I am. You realize there's a, there, I know you're not supposed to believe there's difference between men and women, but there's a big difference sexually between men and women. Women could, it's very easy to be a slutty woman. Very, very, very easy. Cause there are plenty of guys that are more than happy to have sex with you with no, uh, strings attached. The reverse is not is true, or at least it hasn't been in the past. And you have been tricked into something if you start behaving like men, and you're not going to be happier for it. Using term using new terms for old proclivities, the world demi the word demisexual has become popular. Now, I think I mocked this a while back, but I didn't quite understand what demisexual meant. I thought it was another one of these gender fluid weirdness things. Uh, it refers to those who are attracted only to people with whom they share an emotional connection. 
Before the sexual revolution, of course, many people thought that most women were like this. That's because they were. Now, an aversion to casual sex has become a bona fide sexual orientation. So demisexual is, I'm only going to have sex with people I care about. Sounds like a pretty good idea. In March, Vox's Rebecca Jennings reported on the spread of the cancel porn movement on TikTok. It's just one facet of conservatism, for lack of a better term, that's proliferating on TikTok from rather unlikely sources. Young, presumably progressive women who think that what's sometimes called a choice feminism caters to patriarchy and male gaze. Liberal feminism telling young girls that hookup culture is liberating. Uh, young women are saying, no, it's not. I think that's one true and smart, and two fantastic that 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 younger women are catching on to that. It will yield happier lives. Absolutely, to bottom and, line it, <laughs> and for everybody. Yeah, for everybody, the whole hey, I get to have sex with whoever I want to. Just yeah, guys love that idea that they can just use you and have not have to make any commitment of what. Yeah, that is they're 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 on board with that. And y'all live whatever lifestyle you want. I don't. That's no good for the dudes either. No, Honestly. exactly. So, it's it's yeah. going to help everybody. I just, Why do you think every society, every religion has frowned on turning away sex? from hookup culture? I didn't think that would happen. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Do you remember a year ago, Coinbase, which is a, a tech company, uh, their CEO, Brian Armstrong, put out a statement. Um, it was about a uh, difficult year, global pandemic, shelter in place, widespread protests and riots, riots, West Coast wildfires. Everyone is asking the question about how companies should engage in broader societal issues during these difficult times while keeping their teams united and focused on the mission. Coinbase has had its own challenges here, including employee walkouts. I decided to share publicly how I'm addressing this in case it helps others. Et cetera, et cetera. In short, I want Coinbase to be laser-focused on achieving its mission because I believe that this is the way we have the biggest impact on the world. We do this by playing as a championship team, focus on building and being transparent about what our mission is and isn't. The long story short is he's saying, keep the politics out. You come to work to go to work. We have a mission here. You want to do that other stuff? Do it on your own time. It's none of our business, and we don't want it in our business. And, of course, that was extremely controversial. He was condemned. Well, it's been a year now. And Brian Armstrong, your your cousin, mm. uh, tweeted, It's been about a year since my mission-focused blog post. wasn't easy to go through at the time, but looking back, it turned out to be one of the most positive changes I've made at Coinbase, and I'd recommend it to others. We have a much more aligned company now where we can focus on getting work done toward our mission. And it has allowed us to hire some of the best talent from organizations where employees are fed up with politics, infighting, and distraction. Interesting. One of the biggest concerns around our stance was that it would impact our diversity num diversity numbers. Since my post, we've grown our headcount about 110%, while our diversity numbers have remained the same or even improved on some metrics. Several people told me that this would never happen when I circulated the original draft internally. It turns out that there are people from every background who want to work at a mission-focused company. What was amazing was the contrast between the news following my post and the reaction from employees and people who spoke to me in private. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of what I'm, I've said many times, that uh, they believe it only takes 15% of an active population to pull off a revolution because you have such a giant crowd that will just go along with it just because... They just don't want to get in the way or deal with it or whatever. And I'll bet that happens in a lot of workplaces. The majority of people don't want this conversation at all, but they're mm -hmm. not going to say anything. So you get the impression that 
the loud people are the majority, the ones wanting to talk politics. Yeah, yeah. We we had a story a while back, and I never got to it. I wonder if Hanson can find it. I think he may have brought it to our attention anywhere, our executive producer. It's a job posting board for people who don't want the woke crap. They just want to come yeah. to work. No politics, no vaccine mandates, whatever. Just come work. We'll all get along. So anyway, back to Brian Armstrong's statement. While the media reports were mostly negative. Oh, and that's the other side to that story. The 15% is a good point. Um, but the other side is the me, the impression you get from the American media of what the American people are, what this country is, is so wildly distorted. It is a funhouse mirror. So, while the media reports were mostly negative, and it even spawned some retaliatory and intellectually dishonest hit pieces, the reaction both from employees and the people I spoke to in private was overwhelmingly positive. In fact, I would say it was probably the most positive reaction I've gotten from any change I've made in the history of the company, which is saying something. How could something be so negative in the press, but turn out to be incredibly positive with every stakeholder? The only sense I can make of it is that there is a huge mismatch between people's stated and revealed preferences right now, and we're operating in an environment of virtue signaling and fear of speaking up. The biggest lesson I took away from the whole ordeal is that if you believe something is the right path, it's worth speaking up about, even if it's controversial. You will get lots of attacks online. Not everyone will agree, but ultimately, people want clarity and authenticity from leaders, not platitudes. It will come back to you tenfold. Armstrong and Getty. 